First thing I'd like to ask you about a little is uh, your interest in new music uh, sources. Because oh, yeah. definitely in that piece of yours at the end, is from my ears, mm -hmm. you hear an Ancaro and, and uh, Ligeti in the, in the mix. Oh, yeah. Um, and I just wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about those kinds of influences, which are outside of, let's say, jazz history or jazz sources and if, right. how you balance those two things or think about them if you do? Yeah. I mean, I always played classical music even in my jazz training. I was mm. keeping that up. Mm -hmm. um, I started playing classical music. I mean, always, you know, playing Bach, Beethoven, you know, in the early phases. Mm -hmm. um, but I had some sort of connection with Bartok mm. early on and then that sort of led into uh, Ligeti and Morton Feldman mm -hmm. um, and as I was getting into improvised music I just found so many ideas in that music to draw from for my improvisation okay okay so the the harmonies of Morton Feldman I, those were helpful to me when I was improvising because I you know when I was improvising in a group I didn't want to lock anybody into a certain harmonic mm. uh, you know confining anyone to a certain harmonic sound. But the more open intervallic ideas of Feldman sort of helped mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, open that up and make it more about the, the intervallic relationship mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the, the intervallic relationships in the group um, versus, you know, what chord scale harmony we were kind of dealing with. Right, in this right. piano, you have so much control over which way the harmony can go, you know, which can be frustrating for... Think other improvisers. We were talking I've, about this this I morning. I found it frustrating, so I appreciate the efforts you're making on that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, Morton Feldman, um, Luciano Berrio also mm. is a really big one um, for me because he has a he uses a lot of clusters, but they're not they're I call them diatonic clusters because mm -hmm. they they're part of a scale like you know. Uh, sometimes bi-tonal in mm -hmm. their relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so, you know, just a cluster of sound, but it was actually creating some sort of tonal... Mm -hmm. Reference uh, point. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, not trying to lock anybody into anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with the prepared piano work, this seems to be pretty important with what you do. Any time I've played with you, it's been part of it. And tonight, obviously, it was a big part. What's the background for you in that? Um, in, well, it was probably about 14 years ago, um, I discovered Benoit Delbecq. Have you heard of him before? A French pianist. Really great pianist who does a lot of prepared piano. Um, he has all his own, you know, materials. He uses pieces of wood with like little um, uh, tacks on the end. Mm -hmm. that, so he gets all these sort of percussive sounds and he has a very light touch and this sort of a way of improvising that sounds like someone speaking almost. Like mm. he really plays with the articulation of, of lines. Um, but when I heard that, I was like, I have to go study with him. So mm -hmm. I, uh, I went to study with him for a summer and he just, he sort of explained his concepts of how he uses it. He, and he was also very into Ligeti at the time, so mm. we connected over those, oh, okay. Okay. those etudes. He was practicing mm -hmm. them and using them. And, um, 
this piece with the blocked notes where like you hold down a note and then you kind of play over it so you get this kind of legato like so it has it's part of the rhythm <laughs> but it it makes the spacing instead of leaving the space you would hear that articulation so it makes it sound more legato mm. over those spaces um so he was working with that and so he would create all these rhythmic cycles like very uh long cycles of polyrhythms and um, groupings of notes so that it would you know, be a span of over 128 beats. Mm. And he would have, you know, three different relationships, one in five, one in nine, one in... <clears throat> so that, that, you know, when you multiply all of that yeah. and you get three of them, three rhythms, you end up with these long rhythmic cycles of beats. So wow. he was mapping everything out. And it's to me, it sounded very... It sounded improvised and polyrhythmic, but you couldn't really identify what's going on in the rhythm necessarily because it was these really long cycles mm -hmm. so you weren't recognizing the the, <clears throat> the, the pivot points because they were too ex extensive exactly yeah uh, okay. so for me i tried messing around with that and i found it too confining so mm. i just tried to use the sound of it the sort of improvise with the approach and not yeah be with, so the, rigid with, it. with ah. that feeling of the polyrhythms um uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. And so the, the prepared stuff didn't come out of, let's say, Cage's work or out of the new... It was more this improviser that you found out about. It sort of started mm. with Benoit, and then, then I went and discovered, oh, wow. you know... That's really, really, <laughs> really, really cool. Yeah. Um, uh, John Cage and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Henry Cowell we were talking about, and mm -hmm. um, George Crumb, too, was another big one. So when you, you started working as a musician or studying, let's say, in Canada, and then what made you, I mean, there's probably obvious answers, let's say, but the drive to come to the New York area and work in New York, what were the things that triggered that, like to leave in your country, basically, and, and yeah. study and work in, in a different country? I think I always wanted to come, and my mom was like, you wanted to move to New York when you were like 12. You were like, <laughs> <laughs> just want to be there. Mm -hmm. I think I was just curious, you know, and mm -hmm. I wanted to be with innovators. That was the biggest thing. Mm. It was why I was getting into jazz was I wanted to eventually contribute to that and, and find my own way. So, mm -hmm. um, of course, I knew, you know, everybody in New York was going in that direction, and that's where I could find sort of like-minded people and, and uh, learn a lot. So, mm -hmm. And what year did you move there? Um, I went to school in Toronto mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from Calgary originally, and then moved to Toronto. Went to school at U of T, and then moved in 2001. Okay, so you before September 11th. Oh right, yeah. right. And um, 
I remember after doing a tour with Eric Rebus <coughs> and Chad Taylor and, and you and, and hanging out, just talking late, and all of you talking about doing, as you referred to it, $50 jazz gigs in New York. And for years and doing many, many, many of them and how they seem to be part of, like, key part to your development. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about that process, like hustling in New York and working these, these kinds of shows and what they involved and what was good about them and what was difficult about them. Yeah. I mean, even, even before New York, when I was in Toronto, even in Calgary, I was playing what we would call jobbing gigs. I think they're called something different in the States. <laughs> no, no, that <laughs> Club works. Or job, <laughs> jobbing, yeah. Okay, club yeah, dates. Yeah. Um, but that, uh, for me, it was practice playing with people and learning the language of jazz, playing standards. Um, I was really a, a traditional jazz player at that time and trying to learn bebop and, um, you know, get my playing over changes and forms together and so that experience was invaluable mm -hmm. in terms of developing it just needed to practice playing with people and uh learn you know how to mm -hmm. kind of learn on the job mm -hmm. um so like eric said you know that i mean also in new york i did it i played with vocalists and all these different configurations mm -hmm. some people's music but especially in toronto it was all about playing standards and um, just when I finished school, just before I finished, um, when I went to the Banff Center and met people like Tony Malaby and Kenny Warner, Angelica Sanchez, who were in, into free music. And that program was all about playing improvised free music mm. for three weeks. And that completely freaked me out <laughs> at that time. Because you hadn't done anything like that before until going there. No, I didn't know anything about it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And was that part of your motivation, meeting those musicians from New York? Was that part of an added motivation to going there, to go further into this freer music? Or was it like you just sort of overwhelming and you didn't want to deal with it? Or it No, I mean, I had another year after I went to that program, and I knew I was curious about it. You know, I wanted mm -hmm. to, was like, wow, there's something really here, but I didn't really understand it. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, then I moved to New York. And then also just knowing people in New York, you know, I had already sort of just knew a few people from Banff, some of these teachers and the students. So that already started, um, you know, sort of small community to draw from when I moved down there. Mm -hmm. So you had some people that you could contact and play with. So you weren't yeah, just going, exactly. in, you know, blind, so to speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you started doing these jobbing gigs and, and playing in all different kinds of situations, because that was like a few times a week you were doing these, right? Yeah, I mean, in Toronto, I, it was the only time I ever played like seven nights a week for like two years. There oh, okay. was just that many gigs. And people said that that was the only, I mean, Toronto was like one of the only places you could really play and make a living. And wow. I don't think it's like that anymore, but at that time. Oh, so you were there at a good point to, to yeah, just jump in that. Yeah, it was really, yeah, I oh. was very lucky. So when you went to New York, how many days a week were you doing similar work? I mean, like zero. zero. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe had, you know, one gig a month or something at first. Mm -hmm. At first, and then, yeah. Even then, you know, it's always kind of gone in clumps mm -hmm. when it seems to be busier and then, you know longer spaces so so if you don't mind me asking when you first went to new york how are you making a living 
I saved up a bunch of money to come. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the Canadian dollar was half of... <laughs> so all my money was worth half. <laughs> so um, I didn't know how long I'd be able to stay. And mm-hmm. then, of course, the immigration issues and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, but I've made my way and figured out, you know, I did some teaching and that sustained me for a while. Okay. Um, and, was that like private teaching or a school or...? Um, yeah, yeah, like a small school. Okay. Yeah, and they supported me for a visa. And, oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, so I was very lucky. And it was one of those things, I was staying with my aunt in New Jersey, and I was like, oh, I'm going to ride my bike up the street to this music school and, like, buy some music books. And I show up, and the guy's like, oh, are you looking for a job? I'm like, yeah, actually. <laughs> and he's like, play a tune for me. I'm like, okay, so I played a tune. And he's like, okay, great, I have some students for you. Wow. And then I. <laughs> you realize how lucky that's I know. And then he, you know, I stayed. I stayed. I taught there for eight years. Wow. And wow. he supported me for the, my visa. And wow. it was just one of those things like meant to be. Wow. That's incredible. It was right at a time, too, when I was like, I don't know if I can stay, if I'll be able to, wow. you know, make wow. money and stay down here. But that's incredible. Yeah. And, and when you started doing more work in New York, um, let's say, you know, sometimes doing the jobbing gigs and whatever and trying to do whatever you could to piece things together. When did you start working more on uh, original music, let's say, by other composers or your own music? Did that happen kind of pretty quickly or...? Um, yeah, pr- pretty quickly. I hadn't really composed at all until I moved to New York. Hmm. And I hooked up with Tony Malaby like right when I moved because I knew him from Banff. and. You know, he was so generous with his time, like, come over, play, like, we'll make, you know, beans and rice, (laughs) like, play all day. So we would, we would play these sessions, and um, he encouraged me to try composing, and um, I studied with Jim McNeely, I don't know if you know him, great pianist, composer. Um, he, he, uh, He was a great teacher because he... You know, he maybe not the same direction of music, of his music, but mm-hmm. really good at helping you develop your own path and what you were trying to go for. Mm-hmm. So um, between his lessons and then playing with Tony and some of the other friends I was meeting at that time, musicians, um, I composed uh, some pieces for my first record, which is called Lifespan. And then kind of after that, took a big turn and wrote music for more improvised settings and it's been like that ever since so if you're curious about the transition <laughs> check out the first record which is called lifespan and then the next record which is called the slightest shift and that it was the slightest shift <laughs> it was a big shift <laughs>
since I've known you, uh, you have really this voracious curiosity about other kinds of music, like stuff you haven't heard before, or like I remember playing you a, a Gal Costa piece, and you yes. like flipped out. Yeah, over I got it. way into Brazilian music yeah. after that. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of thing, it's like super exciting to be around when you're with musicians and and like you're feeding ideas and finding out about new things. I mean, in terms of pianists, like who who are the people that have really impacted you, whatever music background they were from, but like things that have affected the way you think about the instrument in ways that are important to you now? Yeah. I mean, early on, it was people like Herbie Hancock and Keith Jarrett. Those were like the two guys mm -hmm. the reason I played, decided I want to be a jazz pianist. And I checked out a lot of their music and trans uh, did a lot of transcriptions. And then uh, people like Bud Powell and uh, Thelonious Monk kind mm -hmm. of later on. Um, so it really, I came really from the jazz tradition um, in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then later on, uh, Cecil Taylor, for sure, Paul Blay. Um, and then uh, and then there's classical, you know, like we mentioned, Barrio mm -hmm. and... Um, Debussy has been another one lately that I've been revisiting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I learn these pieces so that I can, you know, learn the language deeply, almost like a transcription, mm -hmm. and then use them as improvisation. So you actually go to the scores and work on the scores? Yeah, like develop. I'll really learn them. And I would never play them in public because I can't really play them, but mm. it's almost like a composer's study in a way. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. I'm, not, I'm not really that kind of a like classical performer, but... Mm -hmm. It helps to inform the improvisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like that that Ligeti piece. I th actually, I think I got them mixed up. That <laughs> now that I think about it, that was number seven of the Ricercata pieces. Um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is another one. <laughs> That's on the one of the solo records I did called uh, Massive Threads. And it, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it has kind of like a gamelan effect, so that's uh, why I got them confused. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. And do you, I know like talking to someone like Joe Morris, for example, his he always cites Jimmy Lyons and, and horn players as being having a lot more impact on his playing than guitarists. Mm -hmm. And do you have people working in, with different interest uh, instruments rather? that have affected the way you think about the piano or is that like just a far too far a feel like you work with people obviously and you listen to that music yeah. but is it just unrelated for you there was a period in time in new york when i was going out to see music every night and it was always without a pianist mm -hmm. and i did that for probably two or three years and i think that might have had some sort of weird <laughs> influence <laughs> on the way i think about the instrument and mm. Um, you know, how I could sort of switch roles or I try to switch roles as a pianist and think, you know, how would a horn player play here or mm -hmm. how would a bass player play here? Mm -hmm. I think about the piano more as an orchestral, mm. you know, instrument um, than, mm. you know, the sort of chord scale harmony that I came from. Right, right. No, I, it's fascinating to me that you bring it up that way because... You know, earlier today we were talking about how many piano players I work with or I do it. And definitely it can be an issue as a horn player to be playing with someone. And they can be amazing. 
pianists and musicians, but you can it's it can get into an area where you're starting to feel more and more boxed in because mm-hmm. there's so much the piano can do, right. and if they get running down that path, you can feel like the walls closing in around you as to what works in an improvising situation. And definitely playing with you and Eric's quartet, it's been remarkable how transparent what you do. Like there's all this information coming in the improvising, but there's so many choices left, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Which is is really phenomenal as a a horn player, let's say. Mm -hmm. It's like you don't, I don't feel like you're you're dictating where the music has to go. You're just opening up these these possibilities all the time with this clarity, which is super, super fantastic. I guess we'll turn it over to the questions in the audience. Uh, does anyone have something to ask Chris about our music? I'm just wondering if like solo playing has always been something that you've uh, focused on, or something that's always been like an important thing. I don't know. I, I was kind of running through the gamut. I think at one point, like, okay, I did the trio record now, like quintet record now. I got to play a solo thing, and so I played. You know, came up with some solo repertoire and made you know my first record and. Um, and then I did a couple solo tours too and made it more of a study in a way Mm -hmm. so that I would record it every night and I would listen to it on the plane as I was like going to the next gig trying to see you know if I could if I wanted to change things as a listener so became almost like a practice Mm um so yeah I don't you know i I do it often because, you know, if I get asked to do it, you know, I go back in and, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it is hard for me to, to try to play one show, like a solo show and, uh-huh. you know, cause I, you know, I want to be able to kind of go deep and make it that study. I have that sensibility and the remembering, you know, how that felt. So, um, but it's like a muscle with anything, you know, and mm-hmm. Like, I, I just flexed it, and now I won't do it again for, <laughs> for a little while. Although Eric and I are going on a duo tour, so it's close. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask maybe who are some lesser-known pianists that you wish more people knew about? Like, you know, Angelica Sanchez, that people are Ben Lund, Delbeck, or Horace Tapscott, or Don Pullen, or, or yeah, people yeah. like this. Um, well, we were just talking about uh, this a little bit, but do you know Joseph de Moulian? He's yeah. a great Belgian pianist, um, and also plays Rhodes and Electronics. Uh, a great French pianist named Antona Rayon, um, who plays with Marc Ducray. Um... Oh, there's so many. <laughs> well, w- actually, I've been doing these um, tributes to Jerry Allen recently, and it's kind of surprising how many people don't know about Jerry Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I only really knew a certain period of her music, so I was going back and um, checking out some of her early work. She's very free in some of the ways that she plays with some of the people. Definitely Angelica Sanchez, uh, if you haven't heard about her. David Varelis, if you know him, also a great pianist. Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> As I understand your career, you started out with classical training and then got really interested in jazz. But the classical tradition never left you. Yeah. And you kept, it sounds like you keep coming back to classical musicians. How much do you even think about these genre categories anymore? Am I doing jazz? Am I doing uh, 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 contemporary classical or whatever? Or mm -hmm. is it all just a, is it all just music, a kind of swirl of influences that is taking you into playing music that uh, kind of transcends the the genre categories that we're used to talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I think more and more, I mean, there's. You know, the old way of learning that, you know, we all have to learn bebop before we can go on and play jazz. That's sort of going by the wayside, I think, and people are drawing more um, from their influences earlier on and rolling with that. So I would say that, you know, yeah, it's... I mean, the only thing is that I... If you're improvising versus reading music, those, those two experiences are very different. Um, like to, two of those pieces today I played are, are brand new and I don't know them as well so I was having to read them and I wanted to close my eyes and you know and so it was sort of a struggle to <laughs> deal with that and, and you know want to internalize it but I wasn't quite there yet because it's all new Are those categories constricting? Not to me because no. I don't feel like I have any no one expects me to be something <laughs> but I'm just like you know, I I was never like kind of pushed to be a certain player, um, you know, straight ahead like swinging pianist or you know classical imp uh, you know player or whatever. So for me, I was just frank, kind of free to um, explore these things and not have to worry about those sort of restrictions. So I was lucky in that way. Yeah, well, that freedom is pretty, pretty fantastic. <laughs> Even though at the time I was like, oh, I want them to like, you know, want me to play like the burning bebop solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe one more question if there is one. What, what um, aspects of so-called bebop playing or jazz playing you think you bring into the concept like you did tonight? Well, I think it's kind of hard to say, but <laughs> I think I do have, a, you know, I can kind of draw from the way of playing lines, of playing bebop lines and that kind of articulation and mm -hmm. way of feeling time um, that blends with the sort of, you know, maybe more kind of new music-y repertoire. Um, so, yeah, I think my touch and my sense of rhythm kind of mm -hmm. comes more from that place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for me, I would say that that is an aspect of musicians who have a jazz background who approach improvisation very differently than musicians that have a purely new music background. Yeah. And, a, and part of that's like a kinetic aspect, but part of it also is a narrative aspect. That in new music, the idea of sound just happening in chronological time, even if, or if there's a grid of 
of a pulse. Mm -hmm. The way that they will put the sound there doesn't necessarily lead the listener in the same way that jazz players, even if they're using extended techniques, tend to move the music. And that's it's a subjective difference, but I for me it's very clear. Mm -hmm. If I hear someone who's like totally a new music person improvise, the sounds will happen, but they don't connect in the same thread that they will most often with players that come out of a jazz background. And that can be in many, many, many different kinds of ways. It's not just like it has to swing, mm -hmm. but it's like the ideas lead directly and you're kind of pushing the music somewhere. Yeah. Or sometimes in a new music background, it's enough that the sounds are interesting on their own. They happen in the space and then you move to the next event and it's a different flow. Well, maybe that's the thing that mm. is missing. At least when mm. I've tried to play with new music players that ha haven't improvised, mm -hmm. like you said, they kind of make the gesture, but this there's no forward momentum or mm -hmm. like bigger picture exactly going on. So then they're like, but how do you sustain this for like an hour? You know, <laughs> and then it's yeah. like, well, you know, you're improvising, but you're also a composer's mindset. You know, it, it's both of those things. <laughs> And in some cases, you know, to make a huge generalization, new music players who can read unbelievably complicated material rely on a composer's mentality to come from the composer. And they're, they're going in and interpreting the piece and obviously contributing to it. But the structural elements are being organized by somebody else. Mm -hmm. And if they're used to doing that and then they're asked to completely improvise, they lose that foundation <coughs> that they have in other kinds of pieces that are through Compose for them. And there's definitely a bunch of exceptions of people who mm -hmm. have the skill sets and improvising skills that are insane. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing period right now in the music where there's a lot of crossover happening. Mm -hmm. But to make big generalizations, mm -hmm. those are mm -hmm. things that I hear anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.